This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back. It's Fit Nation. All right, let's welcome to the Miss Fit Nation, Emily Johnson, author of Bird of Paradise, coming to us from North Carolina. How are you? I'm good. How about you? Very good. It's great to have you on the show. I'm glad we're able to connect and and try to get your story out here to the audience on the Miss Fit Nation and those beyond there. Oh, yes. Far beyond. All over the world. <laughs> so if you don't mind, if you'd like to tell a little bit about your backstory and uh, as far back as you want to go to up to the point where you started writing a book or why you became a writer at this time. Sure. Um, well, I was born in Colorado um, and loved to golf, ski, um, anything outdoors. And when I was 13, we moved to Pinehurst, North Carolina. Um, and shortly after we moved to Pinehurst, my mom was diagnosed with um, breast cancer and uh, later on ovarian cancer and so growing up throughout my childhood never really knowing if my mom was going to be there from year to year or if this doctor's appointment was going to be that doctor's appointment where we'd have the news that you know there was nothing more um, that could be done was certainly an eye-opening experience as a child Um, you know forced me to grow up very quickly but um, aside from that, I, I played competitive golf all through high school. Uh, I attended UNC Chapel Hill, so go Tar Heels. And um, I was a graduate of the journalism school there, um, specifically in public relations. And so upon graduating from college, I went down to Florida to work for the PGA Tour, um, which was a, not a huge leap for somebody like me who played golf all the time. And I worked in their marketing department and business development department. Um, for several years. And then my mom got sick again. Um, And so I decided to move back up to North Carolina. And that's how I ended up in Raleigh. I worked for a professional ballet company, Grant Riding, for a while, um, and then ended up kind of going out on my own as a marketing and advertising consultant. Um, I freelance now, which is absolutely wonderful. I have a seven-year-old, so it makes a lot of difference when I can control my own time. Um, And that's kind of... um, kind of very generic all about me (laughs) I'm sure I'm missing a lot (laughs) it'll come to you as we talk as we go further into our chat I'm sorry so the light bulb will go on so I forgot to say this and it'll pop up and you wind up back somewhere in the other part of the story (laughs) so I mean you got the diagnosis of your mom and you were still young before you uh, became a the legend of UNC uh, North UNC uh, Chapel Hill there playing golf and uh for the Tar Heels, I'm a Duke fan, so I can't uh, oh, well, go crazy here. It's not <laughs> NC State, so we're okay. Okay, we're sort of good. <laughs> we're not all the way in the triangle of death down there, so it's good. <laughs> and I mean, that, was, that, that had to be like way heavy on your heart and soul, especially as a young girl, and then going up through college, and then knowing you were going to go away and work for the PGA, which is probably a dream gig as a golfer to go work for the PGA. 
and then get the, the, the bad news again and have to move back. How did you well, deal with all that? You know, I still remember the day that I was told my mom had breast cancer. I remember where I was, what I was wearing, exactly the conversation that we had. And I, my only question when they told me was, you know, are you going to die? Because that's what's going to come up in your mind. Um, I'm an only child, so I had that on my shoulders as well. Um, and, you know, my, my parents were wonderful in that they really never excluded me from anything. They didn't tell me too many details to make me worry unnecessarily. But when something did happen and there was news, they never hid it from me. They kind of treated me as if I was an adult, um, which I think kind of brought me along because I never had that. I'm wondering what's really going on or are they telling me the truth? Um, a couple years after she was diagnosed with breast cancer, she had another reoccurrence. Um, not of breast cancer, but of ovarian cancer. Um, and my mom was BRCA gene positive. So it wasn't, uh, wasn't out of the ordinary to be dealing with something like this for her. And that ovarian cancer is the one that came back, I think a total of eight times. Wow. Um, she was given, you know, they told her, get your affairs in order. This is not something that's stage four. It's not something that you survive with for very long. And she, um, I'm not going to use the four letter words that she used, but she was just like, no way. I'm not going to do this. There's cancer's not going to beat me. And she told her doctors, you sure as heck better make sure I'm at my daughter's wedding. Um, and I will accept nothing less. And she went through so many surgeries, um, you know, just a huge six, seven hour surgeries. Um, you know, in 24 hours after being on the operating table, she'd be in the hospital room quizzing me for my final exams in college as I paced back and forth because all of her surgeries were at UNC medical facilities. So it was right there on campus. And um, we kind of became famous for that. She was a teacher. And so she really, it didn't matter. She could be, you know, who knows what she was on at that point, that close to surgery. And she wanted to make sure I did not have an issue with my exams and that I was going to get my stuff done and my life wasn't going to be interrupted. And that was who she was. Um, she's just an amazingly strong woman. Um, you know, and, and you can hear me talk in the past tense. Um, she, she passed away Christmas of 2012. Um, wow. So it was about a 17 year battle with stage four cancer, but she did live to see me get married. Um, so she, she made her goal. She's missed out on her grandson, but you know, I know she's, she's still looking at down at us. <laughs> she does sound like an amazing person, definitely re very resilient and strong-minded and, uh, Yes. Um, and I bet she has passed that down to you and you're able to pass that down to your to your child as well through stories about her and keep her memory alive through your child as well. I hope so. I mean, her her legacy, really, one of the things apart from being resilient, I mean, she was incredibly stubborn. She wasn't going to do anything unless she wanted to do it. Um, and I still will always believe that she went out on her own terms. Uh, you know, she she got it all happened very quickly at the end. Uh, right over Christmas. Um, but she, she, you know, it was one of those things where we, she ended up on life support and my dad and I were going to have to make that very difficult decision on whether or not to take her off life support. And she just did it herself without oh. us even having to make that decision. And I know it sounds weird, but in my mind, she knew what she was doing. I mean, she didn't want us to have that guilt and wonder what if we had waited. Um, and she just, you know, she was always the first to reach out to other patients that were, whether they were getting chemotherapy together or she met them in the hospital, you know, how are you doing? You know, here's more information. Um, you know, my mom probably knew more than the doctors did. She just researched and researched because she was not going to take 
a diagnosis, you know, that, oh, that's done. It's a death sentence. She was going to fight all of it. And she did. And, and she was not afraid to pass on any of the information to other people that were having similar situations to her. And um, I mean, it's just, she taught me how to be selfless, how to um, you know, advocate for my health. I am, I, I'm very closely watched way more so than someone my age needs to be uh, simply because of her history. And I am not going to take anything for granted. Uh, you know, it's, I, she taught me how to advocate for my health. And that's, I think one of her biggest legacies, because if I can stop this here, um, you know, and, and I can pass on her experience to other women that may, you know, not catch it and things like that. And it can inspire them to go and get tested and things. Um, she's, she's done her, she's done her job. I know she'd love to know that. She definitely has. And, and uh, now thanks to technological advances in medicine, detection's a little better. I don't think it's hundred percent better than it was back then. I mean, it was 17 year battle ending in 2012. So there's a long time in between there when uh, the technology there was, if you didn't have a pain or something and didn't go, you would never find out. Exactly. And yeah. now people can look at you and say, well, I think something might be wrong with your left eye a little bit and you need to go to a doctor. What's on the wrong eye? I got to go. And you go there and they find <laughs> out something. And, and it's yeah. just weird like that because people research everything now. And, and like your mom kind of started that in the, in the early internet days, probably. And she was probably using mm-hmm. big books in the house, big uh, medical journals saying, no, this ain't right. You're not saying yeah. the right words to me. Well, and, and they, so. wouldn't have, um, they wouldn't have caught the ovarian cancer unless she hadn't been the one that had gone in and said something is wrong. And right. they're all like, oh, well, it, it, you know, some of the doctors kind of just said, oh, well, this is from the breast cancer or things like that, or they didn't really take it seriously. And then, you know, she said, that's it. Something's wrong. I'm going to do something about it. And it's turned out to be stage four ovarian cancer. And, um, wow. you know, I, I, unfortunately, I mean, the, the doctors are fabulous. I, I, her doctor saved her life so many times and um, her main doctor was even at my wedding. Um, so, uh, which was really, that's the one that she said, you better make sure I'm there to see my daughter get married. And then he was there with us, Oh wow! Um, which was really special to me. Um, two of her doctors, actually her radiologist was there as well, um, but you know, they were wonderful, but it's just one of those things. I think back then really, it wasn't patient driven medicine. And now I think it's starting to change where the patient is taking more of a step in a role in their health. Exactly. Um, which is really important. And I, I think that's a, a big thing with medicine now, because now it's not just a guessing game as much as it used to be. Because when a patient realizes something's wrong, they monitor themselves a lot more now. Mm-hmm. And like you, you, you have a lot of checks now based off what your mom went through, knowing that you might be at risk as well. Yeah. So you're, you're way ahead of the curve of what might happen. And you're not going to let that happen to you or to your child as well as you move forward. So you, yeah. they, your child doesn't have to go through it at seven years old. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I just, that's one of my biggest fears, um, you know, uh, is that my son's going to have to go through what I did, Um, you know, and I came out okay on the other end, but gosh, was there some times where it was just, you know, heartbreaking and so difficult, you know, when you're in the the prime of your coming of age moment, wondering if your mother is going to be there or not for your senior prom and for college graduation and high school graduation and never knowing from day to day what was going to happen. you know, and, and you learn to live with it. It's a new normal. You, it's always in the back of your mind, but you learn to go on. And my mom never wanted me to dwell on it. She was a woman that lived her life with passion. So she made sure that we created wonderful family memories and never wanted it to be the center of our lives because um, she didn't want it to win. And, and that's, 
kind of how, how she went through everything, um, which is how I've kind of learned to do things as well. I screw up sometimes. <laughs> we, all, we all do. <laughs> it's just learning to admit that we screw up is the hard part. That comes with that stubborn part of life and everything. Right. <laughs> the hard-headedness that we all have. And no matter how, how much you say you don't have it, we all have it deep down inside the back of the head somewhere. It's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. Or I didn't do that. There's no way I messed this up. But <laughs> So your mom actually started this book, The Bird of Paradise. Mm-hmm. And and you uh, picked up the reins and finished it. How was that? How was that transition for you? Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, she started writing it not long after she got diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and it was her way to escape from things. Um, you know, she wrote for hours outside, um, you know, and it was where she could escape into a world where cancer didn't exist. Um, she, it was also a way of putting into writing her legacy. Um, a lot of things that she wanted to tell me and make sure I knew as her daughter that she didn't know if she'd be around to tell me. So she put it into this book through the story. Um, it's, you know, it's, it starts out kind of as a coming of age family saga. And there's so much of my mom and my family in this book that nobody would really know unless they knew us, but it is, uh, in a sense, it's a letter to me. Um, and she, she, she spent years writing it. Um, she passed away when I was 30. And shortly afterward, I found a letter from her with a copy of the manuscript. Um, no one had ever read it. She had never let any of us read it, but a copy of what she had and, and a request in the letter that asked if I'd finished the story for her. Wow. Um, so after a lot of tears, <laughs> I, you know, I sat down and I read it and, um, I loved it. I had no idea that, that she could come up with that. I mean, she was a teacher, an incredibly intelligent woman, but it was one of those things like, wow, you really wrote this. That's great. And then there was a lot of, um, you know, remembering through it because she talked about places that we had been as a family and a lot of, it starts in 1967 and the main character is 17 years old living in San Francisco. My mom was 17 in 1967, living in San Francisco. So there is a lot of, you know, just historical things that she wanted to leave for me in that. Um, Trying to come in at that black and white point where she left off was pretty difficult at first. Um, You know, I've I've never written a a fictional book before. Um, I come from a background of marketing and advertising. So you don't describe things. You just get the facts out there. And you get them out as quickly as possible. You know, press release is one page. You don't right. have a lot of room for description. Um, and so I really wanted to meld my style to hers because this was her book. I wasn't going to change it up. You know, I wanted it to be true to her. So it was very difficult for me to get into that mindset of, no, this is not advertising and marketing. This is a story. Um, and she did an incredible amount of research into the places that this book takes place. Um, and so I had to do that as well, but I had to do it having never lived through that time period. Right. Uh, so that was really difficult. I mean, there's, there's a lot of places that this book goes that I've been to personally, but not back then. So, um, you know, I had to call museums and, <laughs> and do a lot of research and, and hope I got it right <laughs> various times. And then I had to go back into what she wrote and made sure that where I took the story, because she left no notes. Um, make sure that where I took the story made sense to where she started the story. So I had to add in things to where she had written, add in conversations, add in events, things like that, that would make the obvious and logical trek to where the story ends. 
Um, so it's really, you know, it's um, to this day, nobody knows where I started and she left off and I'll never tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, my publisher doesn't know still. Oh, <laughs> so um, I've had a lot of people try and guess, but they haven't guessed correctly yet. <laughs> so um, I know, well, I may have let the, I may have let the cat out of the bag to one person, a very good friend of mine, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, and, and that was my goal. I didn't want anybody to know that, you know, to know that. Um, so I had to keep it that way. Um, and I'd say overall, it's about a 50, 50 collaboration, but I, I hope that I, I took it where she'd want me to. I like to think I did. I'm sure you did. If no one can figure out where the, the line crossed between her <laughs> and you or the blurry area where, uh, the gray area where her hand stopped writing and you were started. And that's a great thing that you were able to do is keep it going without a hint of what, what happened right there, yeah. who started and who stopped when. I mean, and you have was, a degree in journalism. I know you were professionally in the marketing area, but did the journalism degree help you at all with the writing? Um, I think it did because, um, you know, writing is writing. Whatever type of writing you do, there is sentence structure and there is kind of, you know, you're writing 101, but then you have to go in two different directions for fictional and non-fictional writing. But as long as you have that foundation, um, I think it does help. Um, you know, it kind of, you know, that you have to get from point A to point B, you just have to be a little more descriptive on how you get there um, in fictional writing. But I think anybody can write, I don't think you have to have a background in writing. Um, I think it's one of those amazing things that anybody can do if they want to do it. And there's so little of that. Um, we're in it's, you know, if somebody wants to write, just pick it up and do it. It's, it's incredible. It was, it was therapy for me. I picked this up right after she passed away. Wow. Um, and so it was a lot of getting to keep on that conversation with my mother. It took me eight years to finish it. <laughs> um, granted, I had a baby and that took away a lot of my time that I could sit at my computer and write. But um, part of me never wanted to finish it. You know, a small part of me was very sad when I finished it because I kind of felt like that that conversation with my mom was coming to an end. Um, and I would close but, the door in that chapter. Yeah. And so it's still kind of hard for me. I never intended to publish it. This was just going to be my personal therapy. Um, and then somebody read it and suggested, you know, why don't you get, try and get this published? And I thought a little bit about it and did some research. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time with a publisher. And, you know, you just, um, one thing led to another and all of a sudden it's published. Wow. <laughs> it's been crazy. And it was released on her 71st birthday. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> all these milestones for you <laughs> yes yes lots of milestones and I um you know I just I'm immensely proud of it not because I I'm all trying to puff up my writing skills but just the <laughs> fact that this was something that I could do with my mother um and I can leave it for my son too which is definitely is really neat because I I I carried through her idea of the little life lessons without overbearing or being you know stodgy about it and things but just the little things that I want to make sure my son knows that's my job as his mother to carry on um and so I was able to do that throughout the story as well for him that's a great thing and we just talked about uh how being in the right place at the right time is how you got published how did it feel when you got told yeah we're going to take this and we're going to publish it and how would you uh, tell a young author that's like on the fence right now with their manuscript what would you tell them to do to get theirs out there? Well, I mean, when I found out that I was going to get it published, um, my initial reaction was joy and then a ton of tears <laughs> because all it was very emotional for me. 
um, simply because my, my mom had always dreamed about being published. So I felt like I have achieved her dream for her. Um, and so it was a very emotional experience for me on that. But for any author that's you know, never published before, I would say go with it. I mean, just do your research, find a publisher, you know, don't be, you know, everybody is going to get turned down when you query, you know, your manuscript and, and it's not necessarily that you're not good at writing or you don't have the good story. It just might be wrong time, you know, or wrong person that you're querying it to or the publishing company and never give up because anybody I think has the ability to be a published author if they believe in themselves. And it's, it's not, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people out there that have been trying and trying and trying, but it really takes belief that you are good enough. And that comes out of your writing, comes out of, you know, when you write your query letter and never giving up. I've seen so many writers um, between Twitter, you know, that you follow in the writing community, they get so disappointed when they get told no over and over again. And then all of a sudden they get a yes. But had they given up right away, you would have never known. Right. And so it, it, you're not judging how many times you get knocked down. It's that one time you get back up and you keep getting up and you fight and you get that yes. Exactly. And that, that wall comes down and the sun comes up and your book is on the shelf at Barnes and Noble or <laughs> Amazon or wherever at this time. I wherever. still can't believe it. I mean, I'm <laughs> still, I am the last person in the world that ever thought I'd have a published book. So <laughs> that's just another gift for mom there to, to push you to a new height a new yep. thing, a new journey for you. So now you got Bird of Paradise out there. Have you thought about writing either a sequel to it or a, a different genre book altogether? Um, I do have an idea for a second book. Um, whether or not it actually gets out of my head and onto the computer is a whole <laughs> you know, different story. I've tried several times to start it and it's just not, it sounds so much better in my head than what it's coming <laughs> out when I type. Um, and so I think I've got some writer's block when it comes to that, but I do have an idea with a story that's going to be connected to bird of paradise. Um, you know, and it just has to get there. (laughs) I don't, um, I love reading all genre of book. Um, I don't think I have what it takes to be a fantasy writer. Um, I just don't, I don't know enough about it. I enjoy reading it, but I can't come up with something as brilliant as some of these other writers do. Um, it just doesn't form in my head. So I think, you know, and I think that's important for any writer um, to really learn to write what you you love and what speaks to you, not what you think people want, Um, because that'll come across in your writing. And it will also drive you crazy if you're writing something that's just not right for for your personal, you know, who you are. Definitely. And and once the idea is in your head and you want to chase it down and get it on the computer, you have to have the proper uh, structure of writing it. And like you're saying, as you write it, it just doesn't feel right as it's coming out. So you just start over, start over, start over. Yep. What are the most important elements of writing that will help keep that thing going instead of having to start over? Well, I mean, it's um, probably, and it's not even an element of writing. It's just a mindset. Don't be afraid to walk away for a little bit. Um, I, I wrote, I wrote, I finished Bird of Paradise relatively quickly for what it is um but it was just kind of the first layer and then I went back and I had to add layer upon layer upon layer almost like paint um (laughs) to come up with something that that was a book and um and I had to walk away several times to it I had to and I think it's something that a lot of writers can um probably relate to is at some point you have to know when to stop 
Um, that's probably, I could, I could still be writing this, um, you know, and, and it's been published since last March. And um, just because you're never, as a writer, at least for me, I was never 100% satisfied. But I had to learn to pull myself away from it personally and look at it from outside of, you know, these characters were my babies. I mean, they were, they were my family for a long time. And it's very hard to look at it objectionably uh, or objectively. But um, I think, you know, it's just get it all out there first. Don't be concerned about where it goes or what it sounds like, or if you're using the right descriptive word here or there, just get it out kind of as a flat layer. And then you can start doing your wordsmithing and doing your word choice and, and decide which direction to develop the characters. Um, basically just, just get started. I need to take my own advice. <laughs> so, so get that idea out of your head and then I just start typing again. Yeah. Now, I've had one that uh, since uh, online, my first deployment, I started writing one that was in 2003. And it's like you've done, I had the idea, I write and I stop, I write and I stop, I write and stop. So it's, there's many portions of it. The first page has been written like 75 times. But <laughs> going past that first page, I keep changing my idea of what I'm going to do. So it changes the whole thing again and change it and change it. So now I'm already, and I'm up to 30 pages now. So I haven't stopped now. I keep going. It's going to happen. I know it's going to, I'm going to finish this book and it's going to be amazing. I'll be happy to if it don't get published by someone else, I'll just do it myself and get it out there just so it's out there. Just so the story's told. Well, and that's something that's so incredible about what they do nowadays is that you can be a self-published author. And that used to be, you know, if first you went from the top five publishing companies, which, you know, unless you had a ton of money to pay an right. agent, you weren't going to get into. I mean, it was very rare. And then they had, you know, they started scaling down to some of the smaller publishers. And now that they have the self-publishing option, I think it opens the world up to so many incredible stories that people wouldn't have been able to get out there. Otherwise, I love reading self-published and indie authors. I mean, it's almost all that I read <laughs> um, with the exception of what I'm reading right now. I admit, but, um, <laughs> but it's, it's something and it, and it's not just because I want to support other, you know, authors that don't have that the means to put behind the big companies, but really because I just love the stories. I think it's, you get so much passion for people when are there, this has become their project. They're not trying to write it for a check. They're trying to write it for themselves. Yeah, um, just, and that's exciting to me. And to kind of get their story out there, or if it's a self-help book to get that help, that stuff they mm -hmm. believe will help someone else just out there. If it helps one person, they're yeah. excited. It yeah. may not, it may not help great. the New York Times bestseller list, but that one kid that picks it up and says, this will be good for me as I leave high school. Mm -hmm. You're great. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I went into this with the goal that I'd sell one book to someone that wasn't a family member, um, and, you know, and, and, it, and I did. And so to me, I, this was a success. I mean, maybe it'll never go anywhere from where it is. You know, I mean, the reception to it has been absolutely incredible to me. Um, what's been more amazing is the people that have reached out to tell me about the stories of having parents with cancer oh. and how they dealt with it and how they've just found out about their mom being diagnosed or they've just lost a parent. And that has been something that I never even considered. Um, and so it's, it's, it's brought a lot back to me, but I, I also am able 10 years from that, having had to go through that, I'm able to see the other side of it. Um, and so it's been, I, I've gotten to know some of these people very, very well. And I talk to them and, and, you know, chat online and it's, it's been kind of exciting for me yeah. to, to be able to kind of feel like I'm giving back a little bit. Right. Um, and you went through, I mean, you had 17 years of going through the, from diagnosis till when your mom yeah. finally, she ended, if she ended on her own for you, 
at the doctor's office. And so that's a wild roller coaster for you from the age you were to when it happened, when she finally passed. So when these people express that they're just found out or their loved one just died, what advice do you give them to, I guess, go through that roller coaster? You know, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that I always hated hearing from people after it happened to me was it's going to be okay. Um, it's the, nobody knows what to say. I mean, it's, it's, I've had it happen to friends who've just lost parents. And even though I went through it, I still don't know what to say. Um, but it's, it's, it's not going to be okay, but it's going to be different. And it's, you'll never, you'll never be over losing a parent. And that's something that I think people need to realize right away. They always hear about the stages of grief and that at some point you get to accept it and you go on and, and it's just, it's, it's okay to grieve on your own schedule. It's okay not to be okay about it. Um, other people are going to grieve in different ways. So if you've got brothers, sisters, you know, father or mother and things like that, and they grieve differently than you do, it's not because they don't care. It's not because they don't miss the person. It's just, everybody has to be okay with doing it their own way. Um, looking back on it for me, I had a friend that lost a parent and she asked me, you know, does it ever get better? And it just, it becomes a different, it becomes something you learn to live your life with, you know, you get to that point where you've had all these sad memories and you can't stop thinking about the last few days when you watch the hospital and and things like that. But then you get to a point where you're out where you can start looking at the positive memories again and start realizing the gift that they left you and focus on that and focus on their memory on a happier note. Um, so really, I guess that's a long way of saying my advice is that just let it go wherever you need it to go. Um, it's just not, it's not something that we all can go through the same way. Right. There's no two, no two of us are the same. And... No. And, and, and there's times now, you know, 10 years out where something will happen or, you know, there, there'll be something on TV that makes me laugh or, or my son will cough. And I wonder if he's, you know, needs to go to the hospital. And all I want to do is pick up the phone and talk to my mom. Right. She would be who I would ask, um, you know, not having her here. Um, certainly, I think a lot of parents and mothers can understand that when you have a kid, all of a sudden, a whole new level of anxiety hits your, you know, your life when you're like, oh, oh, you know, they bumped into a wall. Do I rush to the hospital? <laughs> you know, and not having my mother for that has been very difficult. So there's still times where I will pick up the phone ready to call my mom. And then I'll be like, wow. oh, wait a minute, I can't. Um, you know, so I've learned to talk to her. Um, you know, anyone that hears me probably thinks I'm going insane. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, I've still, that's where how I've learned to grieve. I've learned to, you know, basically still keep her in my life make sure her legacy is still here make sure my son um knows who his grandma was and you know i i still think back on you know the the what would mom do (laughs) is kind of where i am at this point um but so many people think oh well i should be over it by now and it's not going to happen that way um it just gets different you know it gets to the point where you can live with it but it's still going to hit you out of the blue sometimes and i don't mean to sound like you know debbie downer but it's true <laughs> you know it's it's and and i i i wish more people knew that that's how grief went that it just doesn't it doesn't hit everyone the same my mom had an amazing opportunity to prepare me for it over many many years she and i um, like I said earlier, they were always very open and honest with me, and I felt like I could be the same. So she and I had long, long discussions about 
you know, the fact that she may not be here and what she hoped for me and, and how she hoped, you know, things would go. And if this happens, I don't want you doing this. I want you, you know, to, to take care of your dad and you guys, you know, stay with each other and take care of each other and things. And I, um, I got the chance to say goodbye. The last thing I ever said to my mom was, I love you. And she said, I love you back. And then she was put on life support. So, um, you know, that's an amazing, I had, I I almost got closure before I had to have closure. Uh, and, And I think that helped a little bit. I'm sure it did. And like you mentioned, you had 17 years of waiting for that moment when you found out that it's yeah. going ha- it's, it's to be over and it still doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make it easier that day that you actually find out it's over. And we're all in this blueprint, like you said, that, oh, you, you get a two-week grieving period. Uh, most jobs give you a five days of bereavement. Mm-hmm. Five days is nothing to get anything <laughs> settled or even get your mind settled. You're still in shock in those five days to try to figure out what you're supposed to do next. What do I do with my hands now? What do I do? Uh, how do I get all these affairs taken care of? What do I do with all this stuff? And, and you and your dad had to go through all that together. Then you had to go back to life. Yeah. You still live. Well, at that point. It, yeah. And it's, you know, part of that, what do I do now having to get all the affairs in order and handle all that? That's almost a blessing because it focuses you on something other than what the emotional part of things you become very, um, you know, robotic for those, those first few weeks afterward of just, you know, here's my list of everything I have to do and call the banks and things like that. And then it's after everybody leaves and it's after everybody goes back to their own lives where all of a sudden you sit down and think, oh my God, you know, she's really gone. Um, You know, and that's when it hit my dad and I almost at the exact same time. So I, I basically stayed down in Pinehurst for uh, probably close to four weeks afterward. Um, and then tearing myself away and coming back to work and trying to get my, my life going back again, that was very difficult as well. Um, and I just had to learn just to not be so hard on myself. And like we both have said, it, you got to just got to let the ride the waves of emotion as they come to you with a, the grieving process. There's no, I mean, I'm sure our doctor will tell me I'm wrong, but there's, there's no real blueprint to grieving it. You no. can't do it in order. There's no check marks. Oh, I've done that one already. I can't go back to that one. <laughs> it's going to happen again. You're going to yes. keep going through it. Yes. And, and you're going to, you know, two steps forward, one step back as you feel like you're healing through it. Um, but you will get there eventually. It's just, it's just, it's, it's so hard <laughs> to get there, but it makes, I hate that, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, I really don't like that phrase, but I do feel having gone through what I've gone through, obviously I'd prefer it never to have happened, but I do feel a lot stronger coming out on the other side that I can face a lot of things that I would have never been able to face beforehand. Not that I want to, um, but you know, it, it, it does give you, and I think that's almost a little bit of a gift of the whole thing. Um, right. You know, it's, you have to start looking for the good. Got to find the good, find the light of every day, find that light that makes makes you kind of happy or makes you smile at least once a day. Yep. So Emily, thank you for sharing your story with us. It's very strong and uh, it it shows resilience and shows your strength. And you shared your book with us. Uh, Where can people get your book if they want to buy it? It's available on Amazon um, under Bird of Paradise, or you can search my name. Emily Hughes Johnson is the way, and Marilyn Ann Hughes are the authors. Um, I had to make that connection between the Hugheses. So. Okay. Um, and it's available exclusively on Amazon um, and Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Okay, no Audible yet? 
no audible yet. No, I, that is somewhat in the works. Okay. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me about it. So it's, it's out there somewhere, but not yet. <laughs> okay. And if someone wants to have you come on their show or just talk to you, how do they get in contact with you? Um, probably the best way to get into, into uh, contact with me is through email um, or um, even um, Instagram or Twitter. Um, you can find me on those as well. <laughs> so okay. I wish I knew what my Twitter and Instagram handles were, but I don't. I can, I can put them in the show notes. <laughs> that I'll put it in the good. show notes for everybody. <laughs> I'll put all three in there so they can find you. I, I, am, I am part of that generation that's to, to the end of social media. I am just barely holding on to the knowledge that I need to be able to do it. Um, you know, I was, I was the no internet as a child generation. So. <laughs> we didn't have computers when I was a kid, so don't worry. <laughs> well, I didn't either. So. <laughs> Our computer was outside throwing rocks at each other. So. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your story and coming on to Misfit Nation. And we look forward to good things for you in the future. Well, thank you. I really enjoy talking to you. Awesome. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. You know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on Fit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. If you want to, please become a supporter to help us carry this thing on. We appreciate you. If you know someone that brings that energy, has a great story, is an up-and-comer in any industry of music, in the arts, have them reach out to us on TheMisfitNation.com. We will get back to them within one day and get them on here so they can share their story with the world. As always, till next time, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling, because we are Fit Nation.